This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll be looking at a portion of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. We will begin at verse 17 and continue through the end of the chapter, verse 34. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, on this occasion where we prepare to take the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, to understand it, that we may partake of this supper you have given us with the proper reverence, but also the proper joy and the proper anticipation of the kingdom that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we come here today in part to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Even as often as we take it here, every couple of months, it is important from time to time to reflect on what we are doing and why. We do not want this sacrament of the Lord's body and blood to become something rote or routine, something that we do out of a wrong understanding, or something we just do because, well, we're at that Sunday on the calendar again, so I guess this is something we need to do. We need to reflect on both the solemnity and the joy that comes as we partake of Christ as he is offered to us in the sacrament. In order to do this, we turn today to this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. It is the longest and most detailed teaching on the Lord's Supper given by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Now, as with much of Paul's teachings in this first letter to the Corinthians, this comes in response to difficulties, to problems that that particular church is having. Corinth was a church in crisis, a very dysfunctional church. They were facing all kinds of conflicts and problems and errors and sins and false teachings in their, in their midst. Now, I don't think we're in that situation here today. I realize I read this passage and there's some pretty stinging words in there, and I, I don't think they particularly apply to us here today. I said the same thing in winter this morning, too. I don't think that um, these rebukes necessarily apply to us directly, but they do come to us as a warning of what could happen, of where we could possibly be if we make light of the supper and if we do not partake of it in the way that we should. By God's hand of providence and by the inspiration of Paul, by the Holy Spirit, these instructions have been left here for us for how things in the church, and particularly in this passage, how the supper is supposed to go. So as we prepare to take the supper, let us reflect on it, what it is, what it does, and what we should believe and understand about it. And this affects how we will partake it. So we will look at Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper this morning in three points. First, there are problems with the Supper in Corinth in verses 17 through 22. As I said, in that church, they were doing things wrong. They were doing things wrong that had severe and grave consequences. So what were those errors and what does Paul's reaction to them teach us? Second, we see the power of the supper in verses 23 through 26. Why is the supper powerful? Why do we do it? Why should we care? In light of the problems positively stated, what is the supper and what is it good for? And then third and finally, preparation for the supper in verses 27 through 34. There are certain ways that we should partake the supper and approach it lest we partake unworthily. So again, we have problems with the supper, power of the supper, and preparation for the supper. So first we see problems with the Lord's Supper in verses 17 through 22. This passage comes in the larger context of Paul's teaching concerning church practices, particularly worship practices. Immediately before this, Paul wrote about head coverings. It's another issue we can take up at another day, maybe. But after this, he will talk about spiritual gifts, the apostolic gifts, tongues, and things of that sort, and how they were applied in the early church. And actually, 
We'll be looking at that just a little bit tonight as we look at the next passage in the Gospel of John. But in this passage, Paul is writing because he knows there are problems with Corinth's observation of the Lord's Supper. He doesn't mince his words about it. He doesn't pull his punches. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now, again, I'm not aware of any such egregious problems here. But imagine as a church getting a letter from Paul and he says that you're coming together as a church is a net negative. As vital as important as it is for the church to come together and worship God and partake of his ordinances, things were so bad in Corinth it would have been better off if they weren't. That's how bad, that's how dysfunctional, that's how broken the situation in Corinth was. And Paul goes on to explain why. First, there are divisions. There are factions among that body. Now, this is something that comes up all throughout 1 Corinthians. Clear back in chapter 1, Paul called out the Corinthians where some of them were saying, I am of Paul, so even Paul's own fans he's calling out. I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas. We better know him as Peter. And then there's the ultra-pious sounding, I am of Christ. Now Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ, they were not divided against each other. They taught the same gospel. They taught the same doctrine. But the members of the Corinthian church had rallied behind their favorite teachers and wanted to be identified with them. They sort of had their clubs, they had their, their groups, their churches within the church. They're like, yeah, we're the ones that follow the right guy, and so we're the ones who've really got it figured out. Now, good and godly teachers of the Word are a gift from God, and they had many at their disposal with Paul and Peter and Apollos and Christ himself. But we should not divide in the church along the lines of which men we support the most, and especially men who aren't even here. Paul, Peter, Apollos, none of them were at Corinth. They might write or visit once in a while, but their work was elsewhere. And yet Corinth was having this factioning, this sparring about people who weren't even there. And this factioning was so bad that it led to favoritism in partaking of the Lord's Supper. People were basically fighting over the elements, wanting the people who shared their teachers and their beliefs to get the best of it. Now it seems, at least initially at that time, the Lord's Supper was being partaken of as an actual meal. People were coming expecting to eat and drink their fill of the bread and wine. But this was being done unfairly and with disregard for each other. In verse 21, Paul says that some were hungry, not getting enough, maybe not getting anything, and others were getting drunk. They were consuming to the point of excess. Now just as a brief aside, this does tell us for one thing that wine, real wine, was being used in Corinth. Do with that information what you will. That was what the early church was doing. But it also shows that in the early church, there was an overemphasis on the eating and drinking itself. They were just treating this as another time to sit down and eat. Another meal, just bread and wine. 
They weren't treating it as a sacrament. They weren't treating it as a sacred ordinance given by Christ. Furthermore, the supper was being made more about the people partaking than about the Christ who was communed with and the body of Christ who is communed with in the sacraments. So Paul wants them to refocus their priorities. He does this in verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? It would be better that they eat at home than to come together and profane the Lord's table in this way. More on that later. And Paul continues his rebuke. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Do you despise the church so much that you come together for the supper, which should be one of the most unifying things the church can do, and yet you are only thinking and focused on yourself? Paul almost expresses exasperation. He says, what shall I say to you? They're so far off, they're so off the rails, he doesn't even know what to tell them. But he certainly will not praise them. So, Paul has sternly rebuked the Corinthians for their selfishness, their divisions, their wrongheartedness in partaking of the Lord's table. But now we come to our second point. After problems in the supper, we come to power of the supper in verses 23 through 26. After the rebuke, Paul will present positively what the Lord's supper is and what it does. First, Paul is clear that the Lord's Supper, as he taught it to the Corinthians, was the teaching he received directly from the Lord. Now, after his conversion, other than a bit of witnessing in the synagogue in Damascus, Paul didn't immediately go into his ministerial and missionary service. He spent some years learning and studying and preparing. If you were with us last fall, the few times we got to meet because of the weather, we were studying Galatians, and we learned in Galatians that Paul spent time in Arabia. He was being taught by the Lord in other places before he began his missionary journeys. And one of the things that he was taught directly by the Lord was the Lord's Supper. He wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. He wasn't there the night Jesus instituted it like the others were, so he had to be taught it through an additional special revelation. And yet you notice that the supper that Paul teaches is the same supper that is recorded in the Gospels from the accounts of eyewitnesses. It's all the same. Again, no reason for this factioning. Now, so it's not that Paul is trying to innovate or deviate, give Corinth something new about the Lord's Supper. It is the same supper that Christ instituted, the same one that the apostles partook of, and that others would have known and taught and partook. Now we see that this supper was instituted on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. In the evenings, we've been going through the upper room discourse in John. That was that same night, describing Jesus' final hours with his disciples before his betrayal. The supper is not recorded in John. His account picks up after, but in the other Gospels, it's on that same night, where the supper was instituted and recorded. Now in that supper, Jesus took the bread and broke it. This was not merely the breaking of bread just so it would be in pieces so everybody could get one. No, this breaking was symbolic. 
it shows that just as one might break a piece of bread, so too Jesus' body was about to be broken for his people. It is a visual picture for us. Now, this visual picture, it is particularly important for us in the Reformed tradition, as the Reformed tradition holds to a view of the second commandment, which prohibits the making and using of images of God. You can read, for instance, the teaching on that in the larger catechism on the second commandment. So pictures of the persons of God, including pictures of Jesus, those are not okay. But the images that we are given for our weak and feeble minds that need and crave images are these images Christ has given us in these sacraments. So in the supper, we see bread broken as Christ's body was broken, and we see wine given as Christ's blood was given for us. And then we get another picture in baptism. In baptism, we see a washing that shows the washing that Christ does of our sins. Those are the images that God has given us for use in worship, not pictures of God, not pictures of Jesus. We should use the images he's given and not seek after others. But we also see that this sacrament is taken in remembrance of Christ. When you see that bread broken, Remember that Christ was broken for you. It's a solemn occasion. It's not just a snack at the end of the service. When you see that bread break, remember the horrific suffering that Christ endured so that his people might be saved. Paul also describes the cup, the wine. Jesus said that it was the new covenant in his blood. The institution of the Lord's Supper was to correspond to Christ's death as the institution of the new covenant. In the old covenant, there were bloody sacrifices. There was the Passover, the Day of Atonement. There were many others for many other different occasions. These were types and shadows. They were pictures, just like the sacraments are pictures for us. They were pictures to point to Christ's sacrifice that was to come. The blood of the old covenant of all these various sacrifices anticipated better blood, perfect blood, Christ's blood being shed once for all. And Christ did spill his blood for his people once for all. This is captured beautifully in the words of the Belgic Confession, one of the older Reformed Confessions of Faith. It says, We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, in whom the law is fulfilled, has by his shed blood put an end to every other shedding of blood which anyone might do or wish to do in order to atone or satisfy for sins. So this is why, as we talked about earlier in Genesis, circumcision, the bloody sign of membership in the Old Covenant, is replaced by baptism, an unbloody sign of membership in the New Covenant. And this is why the Passover and all the other blood sacrifices, these bloody signs of the Old Covenant, are replaced now with this Lord's Supper, an unbloody sacrament of Christ's body and blood, which has been given once for all. Thankfully for me and for you, I'm never going to be sacrificing bulls and goats and sheep up here on the table in the front. 
It's not fitting for there to be that bloodshed for sin anymore in the new covenant. Now another thing about these signs and about their unbloody nature that is important is it undermines the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, where they believe that by some priestly incantation, Christ's physical, carnal, corporeal body and blood are somehow made present in the elements of the supper. Christ is present in the supper, but he is present by his word and by his spirit. We have this sign and seal given to us by our Lord, by which we are to remember him. None other can and will do. We also see in verse 26 another aspect of this supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Proclamation is typically associated with words, with speech. The supper is a visual and sensory proclamation of the word of God, which is where the sacrament truly derives its power and efficacy. When we do this every couple of months, the Lord's death is proclaimed by these visible signs and seals. But there is more to the supper still, and that what partaking of it requires of us, and this brings us to our final point. After the problems and the power, we come to preparation for the supper in verses 27 through 34. In light of what has been said, these problems with the Corinthians' use of the supper and the powerful spiritual realities behind the supper, Paul ties them together with this next exhortation. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Like I said before, this isn't just any old eating or drinking of bread and wine. Where, what, and how we do it matters. There is a real sense that by his word and spirit, Christ is present in the supper, such that profaning the supper is profaning him. It's profaning something holy. It is blasphemous. It is unacceptable for God's children to profane the supper. The supper needs to be held in proper reverence because it is an ordinance from our Lord and he is present and working in it. Now, this is not only manifest in the outward partaking, which contrary to what the Corinthians were doing, should be orderly and proper, but it also pertains to the inner spiritual state of the one partaking. In verse 28, Paul calls those who partake to examine themselves. Why? so that they would not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And we see that those who eat and drink unworthily fail to discern the Lord's body. They've made light of what is sacred and holy. They have profaned and blasphemed Christ. So this passage particularly is why, for instance, one must make a credible profession of the Christian faith to be admitted to the Lord's Supper. One who partakes must be able to discern the body. That is, they must know and understand that this is not just any old eating and drinking, but a spiritual partaking of the body and blood of Christ. 
This is why Reformed churches do not practice paedo communion, giving the supper to children as soon as they're baptized. For one, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. Those who practice paedo communion do. They believe that when you're baptized, it certainly and infallibly makes you a Christian. And so then you can come to the table. No, we believe, as our confession says, that the grace of baptism is applied according to the Spirit's sovereign will in his time. Also, if one is not able to discern the Lord's body, in other words, not able to know and understand the significance of the supper, they're at risk of being under the same wrath as these Corinthians. And what wrath it is. In verse 30, we see because of the unworthy manner that they have partaken of the supper, many of them are sick and some have died. The translation I read said sleep, but it's not just talking about the ordinary sleep you wake up from. People have actually died from these afflictions that come when they were unworthily partaking of the supper. It's hard for us to conceive of such a thing. We often treat things here in church and in our worship as rote and repetitive. But unworthy use of the supper is so severe a matter that the people who misuse it deserve to die. Even if they don't die, it's a great sin against the Lord. So, we are to examine ourselves, we are to judge ourselves so that we might partake of the supper. We judge ourselves so that we don't fall into the judgment of God. What exactly are we examining for? Well, we're not examining for sinless perfectionism. As we've already looked at today, back when we looked at the ninth commandment, we are all sinners. Even if we're in Christ, the struggle with sin remains with us. The struggles with the flesh and the struggle against the devil. But we should examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. Do we know Christ? Do we believe what God has revealed to us in the Word? Do we receive and rest upon Christ for our salvation as He has offered to us in the Gospel, trusting in Him and Him alone for salvation? Do we hate our sin and more and more desire to put our sin to death? even if we don't fully in this life, and we won't fully in this life. But if so, the supper is for us. But if you do not know Christ, if you do not discern his body, then you had best not partake as you will be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. This is serious business. Question 97 of the Shorter Catechism puts it concisely for us. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And you can see much of that language is lifted right out of our passage today. And finally, the supper is to be partaken of in love and care for one another, for our brothers and sisters in the church. In verse 33, Paul gives the exhortation to wait. That's why when the elements are distributed, we wait until everyone has them, and then we partake together. It shows our unity in Christ's body, not just our unity 
as a body here, but our unity with all the true churches all around the world and all throughout time who have partaken of this same supper. Then also in verse 34, Paul comes back to the gluttony and drunkenness issue. We should never approach the supper as just eating and drinking for its own sake. I mean, we don't partake of it in a way that would be confused for our regular meal. But it's also not just a snack. This isn't something that's going to hold you over until you get home for lunch. No, the cares of worldly eating and drinking and other worldly things ought to be put aside. Because this is a solemn partaking of Christ as he has ordained and empowered by his word and spirit. And failure to properly heed these commands for the supper brings judgment. The order and examination that Paul calls for requires our attention. Now this can sound strange to us in a world that increasingly makes light of the things of God's word and of his worship. I know some places where they'll tell people while they're sitting at home and not going to church but watching on TV that they should eat cookies and drink Dr. Pepper and then call that the Lord's Supper. That is blasphemous and silly nonsense. This is the sacrament of Christ's body and precious blood and should be approached with the weight and gravity that such a thing requires. Most of all, the supper calls us to solemn reflection on the reality of which it is a sign, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Partaking of the supper apart from faith in Christ warrants nothing but condemnation. The power is not in the thing itself, but in the Savior it points to. So all concerns of the supper momentarily aside, do you have faith in Jesus Christ today? You are a sinner. We all are sinners. And on our own, we merit nothing but death and condemnation in hell. Yet our Lord Jesus lived a perfect life. He kept all of God's law. He never sinned. And he suffered and died the death we deserved. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And to those who would repent of their sins and believe in Christ as he is offered in this gospel, there is eternal life and salvation. But failure to do so is to incur God's wrath and judgment. As we prepare spiritually to feed on Christ and proclaim and remember his death, my hope and prayer today is that all would have not only this sign, but the reality of it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. In many ways, it can be a challenging and difficult word as We are so often inclined to make light of the things you have given us or to treat them as routine and ritual and not reflect upon their significance, not reflect on the power that is shown forth in them, the very power of the gospel of Christ's broken body and spilled out blood. I pray that you would ready our hearts to partake of this sacrament that we would do so worthily, and that most of all, all here gathered would have the reality of this sign, which is the salvation that comes in Christ alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.